Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. Take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 3. And if you want to hit pause, you can hit pause and I'll wait for you while you go grab your Bible. But today we're going to work through for the next four weeks, four different geographic areas. Okay, so today we're going to start in Egypt, and next week we're going to go to Sinai. The following week we're going to go to Jerusalem, and then the week after that we're going to go to Babylon. Why these four areas? Well, it's a fair question. Because these four geographic areas help explain the story of Scripture. It helps explain the narrative driving the Scripture. And we're going to work through and try to understand what that story of Scripture is, what it means, uh, what the narrative of Scripture is, and understand what Jesus was calling his people to and what that means for us today. And the series is based in part on the book Jesus Wants to Save Christians by Rob Bell and Don Golden. And so if you haven't picked up that book, I would encourage you to do it. So first, Egypt. So my family and I traveled to Egypt about 20 years ago. And 20 years ago doesn't sound like that long of a time ago, but it is. Um, The world was different 20 years ago. We went to the pyramids at Giza, for example, and you could climb up the pyramids. You could literally climb up the giant bricks that make up the pyramids until this poor overworked Egyptian security guard would see you do it. He'd come over, he'd blow his whistle at you, then he'd sort of go somewhere else, and everybody would then, as soon as he left, would climb back up the pyramids. It was crazy. Um, And we walked inside one of the pyramids. I didn't know before I was there that you could actually go inside the pyramids. And we walked into the burial chamber of one of the pyramids at Giza. And my cousin Jeff, who may be watching today, I'm going to have to send this this, uh, service to him if he's not. He literally laid down inside one of the ancient sarcophagus inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. And to this day, Jeff has been cursed. Well, not really. The first book of the Bible is Exodus. Well, not really. But the Jewish story really begins with Exodus. The book of Genesis is almost written to see how we get to the beginning of Exodus. Because the book of Exodus 
is where the Jewish people begin to develop their story. And it's where the Bible's central story of redemption begins with liberation from Egypt. We'll pick it up in Exodus chapter three, verse seven, where God is talking to Moses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. He adds, and now the cry of the Israelites, the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So God is saying, I have heard the cry of the Israelites. That is central to understanding how God works. Not just in this story, but in all of the scriptures. The story of Exodus begins with the Israelites in slavery and God hears their cry. And God is going to do something about their oppression. This is the beginning of the biblical story, the beginning of a story that weaves itself throughout the entire Bible, emerging as a, and maybe the, central theme of the entire Bible. A way to read the Bible that is sometimes called the New Exodus Perspective. So that's what we're going to be digging into over the next month or so. Now, a quick note. We're going to use Egypt as a historic metaphor, but it's not to be confused with our friends in Egypt today or our Muslim friends living there today. When we talk of Egypt then, we're not talking of Egypt now. When we talk of our Muslim friends, we are not speaking of, or when we're talking of our Muslim, of, of, of the Jewish folks who were there in, in, uh, in Moses' time, we're not talking about our Jewish friends and neighbors today. There's enough anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim junk in the Christian world today that we need to be really clear about that point. Because this story is about healing and reconciliation and hope. So let's make sure that we keep that story about those things. Okay. Now to understand how central Egypt is to the flow of the biblical story, we need to go back. Back to the introduction to the Bible, the introduction to the book of Exodus, which is the book of Genesis, and to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 chapter 8 says, then the man, Adam, and his wife Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he, as God, was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, this is Adam, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And there's a lot here in this story. We learn a lot about the human condition from this story, that Adam could experience God just on a walk in the park. This is not an angry God sitting up in a courtroom judging us. This is God out on a walk 
in the park looking for Adam, looking to chat up Adam. The Jewish concept of God is not the concept of God that I learned as a kid, which is a God sitting up on a marble throne, because that's the Greek God, Zeus. Now, I've never seen God on a walk before. I've never had God call out to me while God was on one of God's walks. That has never been my experience. Why? Well, Genesis, Genesis would tell us it's because of sin. When sin enters the situation, people experience fear. That's why we see Adam hiding from God. And that fear leads to guilt. We are guilty because we have violated God. We feel guilty because we know we violated God. But sin also leads to something more. And then we get a rhetorical question that God asks, who told you that you were naked? Well, as we'll read about, I actually think that Adam told Adam that Adam was naked because nakedness is a matter of shame. And if we feel guilt for violating God, we feel shame for violating ourselves. So when sin enters the order, we have the beginning of the divided self and all sorts of destructive forces begin to tear us apart. We'll pick it up in Genesis 3 verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see what Adam did here. His divided self caused him to blame his wife, a move that some of us know all too well, and it begins to pull him apart from her. Adam engages in blame shifting, and we start to see the rapid progression of how sin impacts not just us, but others out there as well. Now we'll turn to Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, this is an amazing act of love, saying, I want that intimacy that my parents had when they walked with you, God, in the cool of the garden. So I'm going to bring these offerings to you. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look upon with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So with the birth of the divided self, we see the downcast face of Cain, the beginning of depression, the beginning of anger, a resentment of the blessing of one's own brother, and that turns to violence. In verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. 
While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So what's happening is that sin enters the creative order. And there is violence and fear. So Adam feels like he needs to hide his body, which then escalates to blame shifting, which then continues to spiral and spiral until it gives birth to violence and ultimately murder. A brother killing his brother. Sin moves from the personal into the public. This escalation of sin continues over the following chapters until we get to the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them there from all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Sin escalates. By the time we reach the Tower of Babel, sin is enmeshed in structures of society. This is the nature of sin. It never stays in the personal. It always moves out into the social. It always moves out into the structural. God have, can't have people aligning himself against him because he knows that a city divided against him would produce some bad fruit. So the story ends with separation and linguistic separation. That's the nature and progression of sin. Sin moves from the individual to the societal. Ever since Adam and Eve, the movement of sin has been from the garden to the globe, to the world. And sin always moves from one person to two persons to an empire. That is the impulse of sin, to create for itself an empire that will defy God. And that's the necessary background for the story of Egypt. That's the story of Exodus, because Egypt is an anti-kingdom. Egypt is an anti-kingdom. The author of Exodus wants us to see that it's not one person that is doing something wrong in Egypt. It's not one person that is making the entire kingdom anti-kingdom. The author wants us to see that it's not just one person that the persons doing, who are creating the issues are at the mercy of a giant system. In Exodus 1, verse 8, and as a background reminder here, Joseph and his family went to Egypt. 
and they multiplied and increased in number. So again, Exodus 1 verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh, which means that they turned the Israelites into slaves and were given jobs that would make the Egyptians themselves wealthier. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh with labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So they used them ruthlessly. So Egypt opens with a group of people enslaved, a whole system of slavery and oppression that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. We have a kingdom of Egypt that is the anti-kingdom of God. It isn't just one person doing something cruel. It's a whole system that is designed to, to oppress the whole people. Egypt is a picture of what a place looks like when sin builds up steam. There is God's kingdom with the peace, the shalom, the good that God intends for all things. And then there are places where entire societies and systems and empires become opposed to God's desire for the world. And those places, those places are anti-kingdom. I think of it like this. Imagine a slave girl living in Egypt, asking her dad why her dad has a bandage on his arm. And he tells her that he was beaten by his master that day. And the little girl wants to know why. And he explains, well, the quotas have recently been changed and he's now required to make the same amount of bricks as before, but he now has to get his own straw to make the bricks. He tells her he has fallen behind in his brick production and that's why he was beaten. She then asks, well, why couldn't the master just let it slide? Why the beating? He explains that if his quotas aren't met, his master will be beaten by his master's master. And if that master doesn't make the quotas, he'll be seen by his overseer all the way up and up and up and up to the Pharaoh. The father tries to make his daughter understand that yes, the beating came from one man, his master, but his master is part of a larger system, a complex of web of power and violence and industry and technology that exploits people for its expansion and for its profit. That, that is anti-kingdom. Egypt is what happens when sin becomes structured and embedded in society. Egypt is what happens when sin builds up a head of steam. And imagine this girl asking her dad more questions. Questions not about their life in Egypt, but about their history, how they got there in the first place. If we're Israelites, dad, why aren't we living in Israel? Imagine this girl being told the Genesis story of how they became slaves, the escalation of violence that culminates in the Tower of Babel. And what are they building the Tower of Babel with? Bricks. 
The slaves in Egypt being forced to make bricks all day, they would understand the Tower of Babel story. They probably say, yep, we know what happens when people start building their empires out of bricks. Exodus is about, is about a people, a tribe, a nation being rescued from slavery. So in the scriptures, <clears throat> when you refer to Egypt, you are referring to a real flesh and blood story of a people forced into slavery. But you're also referring to a whole system, a whole anti-kingdom that is fundamentally opposed to the way of God. Egypt then can be seen as a metaphor. First, when you read the scripture story, you obviously have different levels of meaning. Egypt is a real place in history where people, the Israelites, were slaves. But also Egypt is a metaphor, a system, a place that keeps people enslaved. I was maybe 16 years old when I went to a Promise Keepers convention at the old Mile High Stadium in, in Denver. And I went with my dad and my brother and 50 or 60,000 other men. Promise Keepers is an evangelical organization for men that teaches men how to be godly men. Those are their words. The group was founded by Bill McCartney, who's the former football coach at the University of Colorado. I was a huge CU football fan. I still am. So it was a big deal for me to go listen to Bill McCartney talk. And it was sort of like how I imagine one of Billy Graham's old school stadium revivals went. And the message was about how men are born into sin, but that in God's grace and compassion, God sent Jesus to pay the penalty of death for us. And then like at the end of a Billy Graham convention, I imagine, there's an altar call where, the invite, where they invited people to come forward, confess that they have fallen short. And I can remember Bill McCartney talking about how everything in the gospel comes down to your personal relationship with Jesus and how we must reconcile our own sinful nature with God through the death of his son, Jesus, and that that is the gospel. That is the good news. The message never once mentioned community or trying to find peace and shalom within the broader structure. And then I remember sometime later listening to a speech given by Martin Luther King Jr., and he talked about the racism embedded in the structures of our country and the oppression suffered by black Americans and said it isn't right in more eloquent words than that. A nation divided over skin color is out of sync with God and God's judgment is coming. And he called on the nation to repent. And through activism and preaching and organization through nonviolence, Martin Luther King started a movement. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. was preaching the gospel. God does not want people living in oppression and segregation. Racism is against the God of creativity. And Jesus wants us to, and Jesus wants to lead us out of racism and segregation to a place where kids can grow up knowing the color of their skin doesn't limit their chances or their opportunities. Are you with me? But now I think back and listen to Martin Luther King Jr. talking about structural evil. And I think back to Promise Keepers event talking about individual sin and saying, are we just talking past each other here? How can one group look at the world so differently than the other? 
And thinking about this today, I know that I personally align more with the Martin Luther King Jr. version of the gospel. I don't believe that we're born into a depraved state. I'm not an adherent of St. Augustine's concept of original sin to mean that even babies are incredible, horrific sinners. The Bible never once mentions the phrase personal relationship to God. Not once. Not Jesus. Not Paul. No one. And Jesus himself didn't talk about sin a lot. He liberated people from sin. And that is a tremendous contrast to the Old Testament or to the New Testament Pharisees and the emphasis on sin and sinners among many believers today. And while it's true that Jesus was more about people than rules, and Jesus, Jesus was more about liberating people from sin than condemning people from sinning, it's important to note that Jesus did warn against the dangers of sin. Jesus did talk about individual sin. He did warn and ask people to sin no more. He warned people of the dangers of pride, the dangers of greed, the dangers of just disobedience, the dangers of judging other people. So sin mattered to Jesus. And as we see with Adam and Eve, sin leads to shame. And shame leads to guilt for violating God's order and can lead to the breakdown of relationships. Personal sin matters folks. And I'm going to say it again, because I don't think most churches that are progressive churches like ours say that enough. I do believe that personal sin matters. But if you just have an individual reconciliation with God, you do not have the whole gospel. I know that. The broader church needs to understand sin as a systematic issue, as much as a personal issue. At left hand, we acknowledge that it is important to talk about personal sin, but it's also really important to talk about systematic systems that ingrain sin into the structures of our society. It's important to talk about how Black Lives Matters or the importance of economic justice or LGBTQ plus related issues. So I think in many ways, many churches today miss the full gospel. And I am not naive. I know this often breaks down into dots on a political spectrum, often pitting conservative evangelicals against liberal progressive churches. And I also know that many, many folks listening probably characterize themselves on the left end of that spectrum, both religiously and politically. But I think we need to be careful with that because Jesus transcends all of our spectrums. I'm going to say it again. Jesus transcends the left, the right, the middle, the conservative, the liberal, the populist, and the progressive. And Jesus challenges us to be big enough to embrace the entire gospel. All right, I'm off a of soapbox. A couple of last points as we wrap up. The central idea of Exodus heard throughout the Bible is the people cried out and God heard. In the scriptures, the cry inaugurates history. And I think if we're to ask someone to tell us three or four big moments in their spiritual life, in their spiritual path, I bet that some of them involve times they didn't know if their faith was going to make it. 
Those times they're laying on the ground or on the floor with their image of God burned to the ground. That's my story, friends, and I bet it's many of your stories too. And I believe our own spiritual journey often kicks into gear when we cry out. We go through a painful time or experience and we're like, God, where are you? When we do that, we are crying out to God. Okay, here's the point. God always hears the cry. God always hears the cry. If you are struggling today, it's okay to cry out. God hears you. It's okay to cry out to God. I know that I've cried out before. And even if you cry out, that doesn't mean that you'll always feel better after doing so. But I do believe that sometimes after distance, you might have a revelation and a realization that God brought you through a dark time in your life. It's okay to cry out to God. So the story of Exodus, the story that deeply shapes the people of Jesus, or the world of Jesus, God comes to Moses because he hears the people cry out and he tells Moses, I know you have a stutter and a brother, so let's do this. See, it's redemptive history. Someone cries out and God hears. Someone cries out and God hears. And this story is repeated throughout the scriptures over and over and over again. When we look at Jesus, many of the stories in the Gospels are Jesus walking along the road and someone on the side of the road cries out. Story after story after story of Jesus hearing the cry. And what is Jesus doing when he hears the cry? He's bringing on a new exodus. Jesus is going back to the exodus story and is inviting people out of their anti-kingdom, out of Egypt, and that's so important, folks. God always hears the cry. There are roughly 2,103 verses in the scripture about the poor and oppressed crying out. God hears the cry of the oppressed. Those who are born into a condition that they cannot transcend, those that are born into systems, God hears those cries. Sometimes we'll find Christians that don't want to hear any of this. That what matters to the exclusion of everything else is our personal relationship to God. But they're missing one of the most essential themes of the Bible. The theme of how sin leads to the anti-kingdom and people crying out and God hearing that cry. And if we're not hearing the cries of the oppressed, friends, if we're unaware of systematic injustice, one of the questions that's kicking around in the back of my head is, is it because I may be a part of a system that oppresses others? And there are ways I may not be aware that I'm feeding a machine and someone somewhere is being oppressed because of it. It takes guts to ask those questions, but I think that that's what we're called to do. So maybe we should all think about that. So Egypt. Egypt is about the power of redemption from empire. And God sends Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses challenges the Pharaoh and they go back and forth on who is God and why the Pharaoh should listen. And eventually they flee Egypt cross a sea, and on the other shore, dance in celebration of their liberation, which 
would make a nice ending to the story of the escape from empire. But it's not the end, it's just the beginning. Paul is gonna take us next week to Sinai. And what happens next at Sinai is revolutionary. Sinai is critical, not just for those people running from Egypt, not just those for the, not, it's not just important to those who are Christians, but it's important for everyone. So it might be worth tuning in next week and hopefully the audio works a little better. Let's pray. God, help us to see the entirety of the gospel. Help us to see how our individual sin can spiral. Please forgive us our sins. Please help us stand up on behalf of the oppressed to hear the cries of those that are marginalized in our world. Help us hear their cry. We thank you for the example of Egypt and the power of the anti-kingdom, the importance of challenging systemic injustice. Help us to embrace the whole gospel, both in our own lives and in our larger communities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.